on the Empire Podcast this week. We're not live in York. Well spotted, everybody. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. And yes, indeed, this week's Empire Podcast is not a live show from York, a city screen, um, because, full disclosure, the recording wasn't great. We were there in York last night, uh, James Dyer, Helen O'Hara, and myself, as part of our first Empire Podcast tour. And if I'm completely honest with you guys, the recording was not up to the standard that we would want to put out as a podcast. So we've taken the decision to come in here today to the pod booth and record an emergency podcast. Uh, So we hope you guys enjoy it. And uh, apologies for anyone who wanted to listen to the live show in York. It absolutely was a banger. What we are going to do is we think we can salvage. (laughs) I'm loving I'm using the word salvage. We think we can salvage a a fair old chunk of the interview we did with our special guest last night, Craig Roberts, who traveled all the way up from London to be our guest last night. Uh, So you'll be hearing that later in the show. Uh, And there's a possibility that given enough time, we might be able to salvage something of the show itself. And if that is the case, that's going to take a lot of work. If that is the case, then we will put that out as a podcast, but at a later date. So here we are in the booth, and I am with James Dyer. Hello, James. Hi, Chris. I'm really tired. Yes, you are. <laughs> yes. No, I, I, it's a shame that it didn't come out because it was, and, and I don't think I'm overstating this, the single greatest podcast <laughs> ever Recorded. Can you believe the uh, and it was Elvis, a one-off. Elvis Presley oh, cameo? The way he, Spielberg came in, Spielberg. James Cameron directed the podcast. I can't believe that Cameron showed Avatar 2. I know. I can't I know. believe that. It was nuts. Yeah. It was, you it know, was and a, when Tom Cruise came to, and did a live commentary with Chris oh to all the Mission Impossibles. All the Mission Impossibles. It was, I mean, it was, it was just it was, it was outrageous. He, he arrived via Halo Jump, of course. He, yeah. he yeah, yeah. went straight through the, the, uh, the roof of yeah. the city screen. Yeah. And, uh, and it was great, but it it's now lost forever. And Craig Roberts was also there, which was really great and uh and we we answered some questions we had some chats and uh, we're going to try our best to uh, replicate that but without the talk about me losing my virginity you might be delighted to know because <laughs> uh, yeah, that wasn't that wasn't uh, an interesting uh, uh digression or indeed the beginning of the show yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, but the beginning of the show by the way was not me losing my virginity it was about me talking <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, the real bang yeah. bang we're, we're not we're not doing we're not we're not there yet <laughs> we're not at that point yet uh anyway we're also joined by john nugent because helen o'hara is on a plane to belfast even as we speak so she couldn't make it in for the emergency podcast and john has graciously agreed to be helen for hello. today. Uh, hello john. Oh, i'm helen yeah, you're the christopher yeah. plumber in this scenario i am the emergency plumber you okay are, yeah. so uh, do i have to no you do you i i, I strongly urge you yeah. not to try and impress hello there i'm helen o'hara go on okay i'm glad you did that <laughs> as <me>. your lawyer <laughs> yeah. don't do that none of that chris so yeah. I just have to sort just of sigh. Just sigh. Yeah. 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 Imagine yeah. I've said something unspeakable and then just roll your eyes. Yeah, there you go. Happy to do it. How are you, John? You I'm okay. Yeah, I'm very good. Excellent. Glad to be here. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for answering our emergency call. 24-hour call out. John Nugent, <laughs> 0800, Nuge help. And uh, here he is. Yeah. Uh, so, well, all right. So let's get into it. Uh, this is a, a, an unusual, unorthodox podcast. Uh, and again, please accept our apologies uh, about the, the York show. Uh, everyone in the room enjoyed it. The T Rex, I thought particularly, mm. that was that yeah. was a huge thing. It was unexpected. Yeah, for mm. Spielberg and Colin Trevorrow to have cloned a dinosaur mm. specifically <laughs> for the show, I thought was terrific. But anyway, here we are. And so, what we did last night, we had an audience Q and A session. So we're going to quickly run through a couple of the best ones that stuck in my mind. And uh, John, these will be fresh to you. I've not, I've not heard these questions. So Whereas we, we Chris had, and I can wheel out the same old shit we said last night. Yes. Yeah. 
so, one of the questions was one of the best questions I've ever heard, which was, if you had to wear <laughs> a movie mask for the rest of your life and you couldn't take it off, what mask would it be and why? To like be specific, yeah. the questioner did not say mask, he said helmet. He did say helmet, that's right. He did, he said right. helmet. Because there was okay. much helmet... Guffawing, yes, yes. tittering, and giggling in the room. You see the uh, yes, yeah. The, the if innuendo. you had to wear a character's helmet, mm-hmm. and that helmet became your head, uh. <laughs> whose helmet would you choose? Uh, <laughs> Michael Fassbender. Um, Hi, what? Magneto. Yes. Well, uh, hang on, you have to specify which yes. helmet you're talking <laughs> you about. You want Fassbender's with... helmet? We've seen that in Technicolor <laughs> in a number of different ways. I mean, dealer's choice. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, so helmet or mask? Helmet. A helmet. Helmet. Okay. Yeah. Right. He was so quite like, specific. Like a Dread helmet, mm. like yeah. a Magneto okay. helmet, okay. like a Darth Vader helmet. Yeah. Uh, hmm. Oh, that's a good one. So what were your answers then? Uh, I, I chose Dark Helmet from Spaceballs because I think that's something I could really carry off. I thought that would be a good look for me. Yeah. I wandered around in that. I thought of a good one. The Predator. Oh, that is good. That's a good Because that would also it? give you thermal vision. It would. Yes. And does it come with a shoulder-mounted no, laser cannon? No, that's an accessory. That's an Why is it an accessory? It doesn't come with the helmet. Why you not? Know, you know, you buy it, so that's as, you know, accessories sold separately. That's you go on Predator a... eBay no. or Predator Gear for Music, no, no, and no, that no. comes as a package. No, it doesn't. It definitely doesn't. People who have bought this have also bought this. Also, if we're going to be absolutely technical, it's not a fucking helmet, it's just a mask, because it only goes over the front of his face and just a little bit at the top. I'm saying that's not a helmet. It doesn't have an, it doesn't, it's not an enclosure. Therefore, not a helmet. All right, Mysterio. Because it's, it's, a, gold, a, it's a goldfish bowl. bowl. And so, you know, you can just <laughs> go down the shops, you can go to Pets for Home or Pets at Home, whatever the hell it's called, and just pick up a Mysterio helmet and just walk, walk around with it. You or Magneto's because it renders you impervious to telepathy. Mm. True. I mean, the boring but obvious and correct answer is Iron Man, right? Like, that's got everything he's like got wi-fi on there he's got heat scanning i think it would be a bit rubbish without the rest of the suit i think you need all of it i need you need the complete package you need to come in mean, all of these would look a bit rubbish without the suit right if you were <laughs> you walking around in your, yeah in your tighty whiteies and yeah. you were just wearing judge dread's helmet or the mysterio fishbowl yeah and nothing else it would look weird you know so wrong. presumably we have to have a package deal yes yes sure yes we agree i think we've answered this okay one. what do you think audience Oh no! Oh no! Anyway, next question. What was a what was one that came up? Uh, someone asked, "What is the best slash funniest slash weirdest uh, promotional film merchandise that we'd received?" And so we went through a hilarious litany of the stuff we've been sent to the office over the ages. Didn't we get a condom um, recently? For did we? Uh, we did. We did. And we got some lube recently as well for something else. So I thought that, that might have been just someone's... <laughs> Helen, <laughs> someone's Helen mentioned purchase. that we got sent anal beads once. And for the life of me, really? I don't remember what the film was. Yeah. Uh, I don't know where they've gone. Mm. I don't know where they've gone. <laughs> yeah, they did disappear from the office. That's true. There is currently a, a, a box of tissues on Ben Travis's desk. That that's I think nothing is, to do with film promotion. I think, <laughs> I think that's a long shot. Uh, oh, yes, yes that's right. Yes. That also came with, yes. with lube or something, didn't it? Oh, did that's it? Yeah. where the lube came that's from. That's where the lube yes. came from. Yeah, it was long, long, shot, long shot lube. lube. Yeah. Um, we, what did we mention? We mentioned that when the men who stare at goats came out, they brought a goat to the office and invited us to stare at it, which was weird, and it stank the place out, and led to facilities banning all animals from the building so that was a particularly special character. <laughs> that's right also we uh, one day I can't even remember the film that it was uh, related to but someone brought in a whole uh, what was it what's the collective term for kittens 
A school of kittens? A cluster. A fuck. cluster of kittens? A, uh, collection? A, what is it? A pack? A litter? A litter. litter. A litter yes. of kittens. Jesus Christ, I'm tired. A litter of kittens. And so, uh, and they came in and it just happened to be on the day that we had Dolph Lundgren in the uh, studio as well for a podcast. And this must have been the day after the Empire Awards a few years ago. Because he came to the Empire Awards and he came in the next day and did a, did a podcast. And uh, so we have a picture of Dolph Lundgren uh, holding a couple of really, really cute kittens. And it's just that lovely sort of juxtaposition of Man Mountain and the cutest little things you will ever see. And uh turns out he only ate three of them mm. as well, which was, <laughs> which was nice. He needed some sustenance. Dolph must eat. Yum, 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 yum. <laughs> no. Awesome guy, Dolph. Chemical engineering. Did you know that? Yeah. Yeah, you knew yeah. that. Smart guy. Smart, Very smart guy. guy. Also, I liked uh, when after the presidential election, I think after the Trump election, he tweeted that, uh, he was a dolphin and he wanted people to go back to his dolphin paradise. Did you see that tweet? <laughs> what? I don't follow him on Twitter, to be honest. But he can be quite funny um, when he okay. tweets. About dolphins? Yes. What? Okay. I'm, I'm not quote, quoting verbatim, but ah, it was okay. something ah. along those lines. Do you think it was a coded message? I think so, yeah. Mm. It might have been. Yeah. Do you remember the time I got sent uh, for the film A Belfast Story, the most misjudged package in the history of <laughs> film oh, marketing? Fuck, yeah. Remember this? It was a yeah. nail bomb and a balaclava. It was it? essentially the ingredients that you need for a nail bomb. Uh, because it was set in Belfast, obviously, uh, and a balaclava, and something else that I, I and I, you know, as a Northern Irish person, I found this quite offensive, and took a picture of it and tweeted it, and didn't expect it to blow up, pun unintended, in the way <laughs> that it did, uh, because suddenly it was all over the news. Mm. The BBC did a story on it. It was in several newspapers as well. I had to give quotes on it. And I felt really bad. I, I, I genuinely felt really bad because it was a small company that was trying to get their movie noticed and I shot on them from a on great height. On the plus side, they got their movie noticed. They did get their movie noticed. I don't know if they got their movie seen, huh. though. Yeah. But, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe it worked out for everybody. No such thing as bad publicity, right? Mm. What, um, else, what else did we talk about? We talked about the people who used to turn up in body paint. That was weird. I remember two, two oh, yeah. women turned up, glamour models wearing nothing but body paint, and that was extraordinarily awkward. I can't remember what it was for. Uh, and then there was a Spartan, some... some yeah. Spartans in their pants for 300. And then we had the Mariachi Owls. Were you there, John, for the Mariachi Owls? No. So there was a band of Mariachi Owls turned up for Rango uh, with a full Mariachi band. And it was like, we were sitting at our desk, we were like, what, what, what was that? What was that? What's that noise? Like, like guitars getting louder and louder, and something burst into the office in owl costumes, playing guitars and doing a whole thing. The best part of this was they took requests, and I got them to play Cancion del Mariachi from Desperado, which I was very impressed they knew, and then played. Very good. You know, owls, very versatile birds, it turns out. They really are. Mm. Sky Cinema, uh, I remember for the Oscars, they had a big Oscar promotion, and they sent a man dressed as an Oscar. And it was literally just a naked man covered in gold paint. What? Wow. With, um, with his winky out? Or did he have a little... I think he had, holding a sword, he had, isn't a, he? he had a sort of modesty pants on. A modesty sword. And a modesty sword. But yeah, he, and I had to awkwardly pose next to him to so we could put a photo oh, on yeah. social media. And those, those were the worst. Uh, yeah. Whenever they would send in certainly clad models, they send in you know male models, female models, and we would... We would be slightly reluctant to pose with them, but Martin Barry, our former art director, he was just, he was happy as uh, big yeah. and shit. I wasn't going just... to name him exactly, but suddenly when the glamour models with the body paint came on, <laughs> there's a picture of him with a very upsetting <laughs> grin on his face in between them having his pitch taken. I was like, you are enjoying this far too much. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we, we get sent a lot of stuff, uh, but we get sent mainly cakes. A lot of cake. A lot of cake. Yes. Yeah. Cake is a made-up drug, but, but it is the, also a very real thing. We had that, two cakes in the office literally like yesterday. I know. Yeah. I know. It's a lot of cake. It's a lot of cake. But also, it's like they, they do that weird sort of like uh, giveth and taketh away thing where 
on the one hand, it's this amazing cake. On the other hand, it's in the shape of some mutilated corpse. Yes. And you're like, um, I'm on the one hand starving, but also a little ill. <laughs> yeah, no, literally yesterday we had a cake for Ready or Not, and it was a, a dismembered hand nailed into the cake. Nice. And, uh, yeah. Lovely. Yeah, charming. Yeah. There we go. We'll be discussing that film in a few minutes. We will. Uh, right. Uh, I was going to say, if you want to have your question read out in the Emperor podcast, but hopefully this is the last emergency podcast we'll yeah. be doing for the remainder of our tour. We have three shows to go. As far as I'm aware, Liverpool next week is sold out. That's October 3rd. But again, always do check. That's at the Fact Cinema in, in Liverpool. Always check with the cinema. If you fancy coming along on the day, there are usually returns. People don't turn up for whatever reason or they have they can't make it, so they send their ticket back. So there, are, there are, will usually be returns. There were returns last night in York, for example. After that, October 10th, we're in Brighton. And again, that's at Dukes at Comedia. And again, I think that is sold out. But do check the website if you do fancy coming along to that. We're going to have uh, a couple of great guests for that one. I promise you that. And uh, so do come along to that one in Brighton on October 10th. And then October 17th, we're rounding off our mini tour in Belfast as part of the Cinemagic Festival, the 30th anniversary of Cinemagic, 30th anniversary of Empire. It all works out very, very nicely. Really, really looking forward to that one. So if you uh, live in Northern Ireland or you live in Ireland and you fancy seeing the podcast live, uh, and, and believe me, do come and see it live in case we fuck it up. And you can't, <laughs> yeah. you, you can't, never to be replicated. Yeah, you can't hear it the next day as a podcast. So come along and enjoy what could be a one off experience, <laughs> truly unique, a bespoke podcast just for you in the flesh. Uh, so do go to the Cinemagic website to check out the ticket situation for that one. All right. Time now for our first guest this week because we're going to have two guests this week uh, as a, a, a bit of an olive branch for, you know, messing up with the sound and whatnot. Our first guest this week is uh, the wonderful David Kep. He is a writer on some fantastic movies over the years. He's written the likes of Mission Impossible and Spider-Man, the first Spider-Man, and uh, Snake Eyes, and uh, a little film, I don't know if you've heard of it, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. What's that? He's a director as well of movies like uh, Ghost Town and Premium Rush, but perhaps he's best known in the industry for being the screenwriter of Jurassic Park. But now, he is also... An author. His first book is an author, Cold Storage, which reads like a fusion, fast-paced fusion of Michael Crichton and Stephen King, who are his kind of the two literary giants upon whose shoulders he is standing. Uh, that's out this week. It's out for you to buy right now. And uh, it's a bit of a rip-roaring read. And a couple of months ago, he came into this very booth and we had a big old natter about his career, about working as an author, about what was that like? And then we moved on to talk about some of his films from Jurassic Park to Snake Eyes to Mission Impossible. He was really great value. So here it is. Here's an excerpt of that. The whole thing will be up as a special at some point over the weekend. Uh, would have been today, but circumstances have intervened. So here you go. A few minutes of me talking to David Kep. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by one of the best screenwriters in the business, now turned author, David Kep. How are you, sir? Good, Chris. How are you? Thank I'm you for good. Having me. Oh, thank you for coming in. Big, big pleasure. So uh, you are now an author. Your book, Cold Storage, is coming out uh, in, well, we're, we're doing this in May. So <laughs> let's just say it's coming out this week. <laughs> How do you feel? Are you nervous about it coming out this week? Um, I'm, <laughs> yes, of course. Um, I, because I, it was enormous fun writing it. And I, I kidded myself all the way through the process when I, because, <clears throat> you know, I'd, I'd written movies for a long time. But and had thought about writing a book, didn't know if I could or if I could, if, if I did, if it would be any good. Um, 
And I I kidded myself through the process by saying, well, I'm going to start this as a movie treatment. And so it's, this is just a treatment. Okay. But the prose I was making better than usual. Movie treatments are horrible documents uh-huh. that, that are they're, – they're, a, a, they're to give you an idea of what a screenplay could be like. And a screenplay is to give you an idea of what a movie could be like. So it's the <laughs> mo- a treatment is an interim, interim document, yeah. which is, you know, terrible. But I started writing it and the prose was – fun and I was enjoying it and I thought, well, I'll make this a short story. So I kept going and kidded myself that it was a short story and it was never going to be anything else. Then I kept going and kidded myself it would be a novella but I didn't care if it was a book or not. But of course I deeply cared all the time. (laughs) So then I kidded myself that it was a finished book but that was all I wanted. I really don't care if it gets published or not when of course I desperately would like it to be published. Then I kidded myself – and I guess currently I'm kidding myself. I don't really care if not that many people buy it. It was just <laughs> such a fulfilling experience. Of course, I want every man, woman, and child in the world to buy it. Of course. So, twice, ideally. <laughs> well, yeah. That's gifts. Um, so, uh, yes, I'm anxious. But um, but so far, you know, like the advance – the early reactions have been quite good. So I'm encouraged. So this was very much written on spec then? Yes. Okay. Which was a delight. I was taking some time to write a couple things that were just for myself. Uh, and it was a delight to not have anyone anticipating it or asking about it or offering ideas. Or it was just, you know, my little project I got to do in the garage. <laughs> and what's interesting about it as well is that it's a, it's a thriller. It's a terrifying thriller. Um, you have a very interesting bad guy in this, uh, this, this fungus uh, which I won't even pretend to try to pronounce. The, the fungus in the book is Ophiocordyceps novus. That's exactly what I was going to say. Which is an, novus meaning new, uh, Ophiocordyceps being a, a family of uh, fungi that that uh, that have a, a lot of people know about. It, it, they came to sort of popular knowledge in the last five years mm. and it popped up once or twice in popular entertainment. Um, they're a terrible fungus. Uh, that infects – it's called the zombie fungus, uh, catchily mm. enough, uh, because it, it primarily in, – in the case of Ophiocordyceps universalis, it it preys on uh, uh, ants in the jungle. Yes. And, uh, once it's infected their body, uh, it, it, it takes over their, their brain function, which ants do have, and encourages them through means that are only understood by the ant and Ophiocordyceps to climb the nearest stalk of grass – Clamp down onto the top of the stalk of grass with its with its uh, jaws as powerfully as it possibly can. Cling there, while the fungus replicates in its body, fills the body cavity with fruiting bodies, and when the body body cavity is full, bursts. Being up on a tall blade of grass, it then mm. spreads out over a wider area, and uh, replicates mm. in that way. And I thought, goodness, if that's not a <laughs> if that's not a story idea, I don't know what is. And imagine if that were – if that affected humans. Um, so uh, off I went. So yes, it's a it, – but, but it's the, the villain of the story and, and the villain is um, – but the villain has to have a voice. So yeah. that led to some of the anthropomorphization I was doing. Yes, absolutely. So we, we get to hear how it thinks and we get to hear what it wants as, as the book progresses, which is, which is a scary thought. You, you don't want this thing anywhere near you basically. No. And what what's great, I mean, whenever you're doing any kind of writing, characters who have very clear motivations are well, they're really the only kind to have, but <laughs> they're the most writable. And 
the fungus really only has one more one motivation, which is make more fungus. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's wonderful to have a character who's so driven um, because you know exactly what they want, and then it's just a matter of how are they going to set about getting it. So I had some of the most fun I had writing the book is into the mental processes of the uh, people who are taken over because they're bit by bit they're losing their mental function, their mental independence. Uh, the flag of their intellectual independence is falling mm. and they don't realize that and they're being encouraged to climb something high and burst mm. uh, and then to burst around other humans because the fungus uh, quickly realizes that to spread, the best way to do it is 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 through ambulatory creatures like us. Um, so it was fun to write characters who are losing their mental acuity but don't know it. It, it, it reminded me in a way, uh, there are shades of, of Stephen King. He's very, very good at writing the inner voice of characters who've been manipulated by something that's beyond their control. Uh, and it also reminded me a, a lot of Michael Crichton as well. And, you know, having adapted Michael Crichton in your career, was that something that you were consciously going for? Um, that sort of sci-fi thriller, but the, where the science, the science is rooted in fact as well. Yeah, one of the, those are, well, both those influences I think are, are certainly obvious in the, in the book. Um, uh, but not in any kind of legally actionable way, <laughs> I would like to hasten to, to point out. <laughs> um, I, got, I got a sense of Crichton. I got a sense of there King. There you go. It's um, not like you're taking entire pages and just, <laughs> just right. reprinting them. Yeah. The, the Crichton, you know, having – I've done a few of his books and um, two of the Jurassic Parks and a one that didn't uh, get made, one of his books that was published posthumously. But what, what I've always loved about them and, and the books of his that I've read for pleasure – it, I mean, the depth of the research is fantastic. It's, it, it's, it's, it makes you absolutely believe what's going on. The genius of Jurassic Park is the the DNA extracted from the mosquito in amber. It's just, it's it's a you know, it's the, it's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow idea <laughs> because it's so good and it's so believable, yeah. and then it lets you have all the fantastic fun you want because you say, yeah, I could see where that could actually happen. Um, so I, I did try to keep my level of research as high as possible, the quality of the research as high as possible, while still letting it be a fun story. I mean, clearly I'm in it for fun. Yeah. It's, it's more important that it, that it be an amusing story well told than it be a biology textbook. Yeah, it's not, it's not a science document in, the, in any way. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so I actually, I wrote the first draft based only on my own research mm-hmm. um, from, you know, books I found and things I've learned on the internet. And I don't know if you're aware of this. You can find out a lot of stuff on the internet, <laughs> as it turns out. <laughs> There's a search engine. I can't remember the name of it, but you just type in the stuff. I'll, I'll look it up on Bing. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, that'll help you. Um, it, you could, so I I learned as much as I could yeah. and told the story as amusingly as I could uh, while trying to keep it reasonably even remotely plausible. <laughs> and then when it was when that draft was done, I found a, a, a scientist who was willing to speak to me and uh, said, <laughs> so can you have a look at this book, um, give it a read, have a really good laugh, uh, and then when you're done, can, can we talk about how we might make it a little more believable, a little more rooted in, in real science? And he uh-huh. said, sure. So he read it. And a guy named uh, Dr. Andre Constantinescu, 
and uh, he read it, and uh, he wrote to me and said, well, the science isn't terrible, which I took as a <laughs> great encouragement, you know. He said, however, if I'm going to help you with this, you must make one promise, and that is that you never, ever, ever confuse a fungus and a benzene again. Oh, slap on the wrist. <laughs> it was. I'm always doing that. I know. Who isn't? <laughs> right? I, he said they are not the same thing. They are not the same size. They're not even close. And you can't turn one into the other any more than you could turn a city into a pair of socks. <laughs> and I wrote back and said, Dr. Constantinescu, first of all, this is a beautiful sentence. <laughs> but I just, the professional outrage yeah. that, that he uh, yeah. expressed was, was, I thought, hilarious. Um, but then we, we, he agreed to help and we settled on a way. The idea, if you read the book, that the, the fungus actually extrudes a benzene, which helps it penetrate mm. certain barriers. That, that is believable, but they are separate entities. And so in the book, I think I say every good villain has a henchman. And I <laughs> saw that the, if the fungus is the villain, then the benzene X, as we come to call it, is the, uh, is the henchman. Um, but uh, so, so the, the Crichton very much, yes. And King, um, the, Stephen King is an influence. Well, sure. <laughs> um, no, I mean, who who isn't? If you, you've been around King before, you, yeah, yeah. If you're if you're not influenced by Stephen King, you're you're a moron. Um, you should be. <laughs> He's you know just the greatest. And his, I don't know what's better his 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 novels or his books on writing. You know, Dance Macabre oh and on writing, which are just uh, essential. They're they're fantastic. Um, so uh, yes, I think um, some of that inner voice and losing control of your mind, possibly in Dreamcatcher. Mm. Is that the one you're thinking of? I mean, it, it's in a lot of his books. You get you get a lot of it in The Dark Tower. You get a lot of it in even something like It, where you know the, where Pennywise possesses yeah. some of the characters from time to time. You do get that. You oh, know, and The Shining. The Shining, of course. Yeah, absolutely. The Secret it's, Window, a, a novella of his that I adapted into a film. Mm. Yes, there's that, that sense of losing control of your mind. Mm. Well, he said something interesting. Well, he said many interesting things. <laughs> One of them is that the thing that scares him the most, and I think this was in Dance Macabre, um, the thing that scares him the most isn't the monster catching him and eating him. That's pretty bad. But what really scares him is the monster catching him and turning him into it. Yeah. Which stuck with me. Yeah. And Dance Macabre, if anybody hasn't read it, is is an overview of horror literature and films that he wrote in the late 70s, I think, mm -hmm. and then updated uh, in 2000-something. Mm. It's great, and it's full of anecdotal stuff about writing itself and, and, and about the nature of horror. Um, I Boy, I must have read that book three or four times in my late teens and 20s. It's, it's, it's almost a less garlanded uh, of his books on writing. People will talk about on writing, but very few people, I think, have read Dance Macabre. Yeah, it's, it's not... And it is very directly about writing. Yeah. Um, but it's, I guess because it's presented more as a sort of omnibus of uh, uh, horror appreciations, mm. uh, I guess. But yeah, it's a wonderful book. It's yeah, terrific. it's fantastic. So how meticulous are you as, as a writer, David? I mean, when you're sitting down to write this book, do you plan it out? Do you apply some of the, the lessons and some of the, some of the things you know about screenwriting, some of the things about structure that you've learned over the years to a book? Or do you find that that sometimes will get in the way of a book, that maybe a book doesn't, doesn't work with the three-act structure applied to it, that, it, that a novel works in different ways? Well, this is a very good question, Chris. And it, 
every time I write a novel, and it's been, <laughs> it's been, let's see, it's been the one time now. Um, <laughs> I think I, I, I brought a lot of storytelling experience, um, but I, when I, as soon as I started, I, I became giddy with the fact that I could, I could write what someone was thinking. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize I hadn't written a character's thoughts for 25 years. You know, movies clearly are about what people say and do. Mm-hmm. And you have to rely on what the audience can see or hear. And unless you very literally tell us their thoughts with a voiceover, which is sometimes effective, usually unnecessary, um, you're not you, – you have no access to inner life. And when I started typing, I realized – this is fantastic. I can do anything I want. I can take a three-page digression into talking about the shitty job that this guy had before he had this shitty job. And uh, I I loved that. And I quickly burned it out and realized, you know, you still have to pace this thing. And, you know, it has to to have a structure. Yeah. But I started – I wanted to do a few things that scared me. And one of the things that scares me is starting writing without a structure. Um, because movies are so meticulously planned. Um, so I I had a loose idea of where it went. I had a loose idea of who was going to be in it. And then I let it unfold and outlined as I went. I'd mm-hmm. say I had a completed outline. I worked on the book on and off for about a year and a half. And I'd say I had a completed outline maybe three weeks before I finished. Um, because everything else up till then, I wanted to have some spontaneity. And, you know, later I went back and moved this here and not a whole lot, but um, but certainly you do rewriting, but not a lot of restructuring. So it it sort of did fall into place as I wrote it. OK, so that was David Kep. Cold Storage is out now for you to buy in all good and evil bookstores and indeed online as well. And let's talk now about movie news. Jimbo, you may feel we've gone over this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it kind of takes the new part out of news. But sure, let's do it. Yeah, let's uh, do What it. are we talking about first? Kevin Feige. That's what we talked about first. So, like, in, a, in a podcast first, we're going to talk about <laughs> Kevin Feige. Yeah. So, so Kevin Feige is going to be producing at least one Star Wars film. Where, so this is where Chris's and mine and our, our universes collide. Um, this, this, is, this is interesting and also fascinating to me and amazing because Kevin Feige is slightly godly at putting these things together. And as we talked about last night, I'm going to be saying that a lot just for the sake of the people who are in the room. Um, this is something I feel Star Wars kind of needs. Now, I should emphasize co-producing. So he's not replacing Kathy Kennedy as sort of, you know, producing lead on this, but he will be stepping in. And I think what he brings is that invaluable ability to tie long form arcing narratives together. Yeah, but I think we may be jumping the gun. Yeah, here. no, hey, look, I, I I, I, maybe maybe he's just turning up and he's going to be like, yeah, it's good, I'm walking out and he's having nothing to do with it. But I am choosing to believe, I am choosing to believe that because certainly with this sequel trilogy, they have taken the approach of giving filmmakers free reign and letting them kind of do their own thing and sort of making episode seven in its entirety, an encapsulated thing, and then letting Ryan Johnson make a completely separate story, and now making JJ make a third separate story without joining these things together, you know, in advance. I wonder whether they're looking now at what Feige did at the MCU and thinking, we want some of that. 
We want some of that. And maybe that's why they brought him in. And I think with Ryan Johnson's trilogy coming out, with Benioff and Weiss's trilogies coming up, I think having an overarching narrative would be wonderful. Now, as you say, there is no guarantee that's why they brought him in. None at all. Has this even been officially announced? Sure, why not? This is just rumour. No, it has been announced. I think it's been announced. Officially announced. Alan Horn has given a statement. I mean, you live at Foggy's house. You should know. Does he talk about it? I moved out. I moved out. (laughs) I was moved out. Uh, I think we may be jumping the gun here. I think this may be a case of... Jumping the turbo laser. I think, yeah, I think so. I think this may be a case of massive Star Wars fan, Kevin Feige, Mm. wants to make a Star Wars Mm. and has has been given the chance to do that uh, uh, while at the same time still being the, the, the holder of the keys to the MCU kingdom. Or he's just adapting Patton Oswalt's filibuster from Parks and Recreation <laughs> and crossing the streams so Thanos will appear in the galaxy far, far away, Jedis will turn up in the MCU, and it all joins together in a wonderful melange of fiction. Yes, I mean, that would be nice. I think, look, it, one of the issues with the Spider-Man flurry they had with Sony was mm. that Feige's too busy. Like he's but th- maybe this is why he's got so much on his plate. He has Jedi so many trainings. That's why he's busy. I I think I think Chris is right. I think it is probably he's got an idea for a Star Wars film. He said he's already got a, an actor in mind for this. He, yeah. They haven't said who. Um, I think it's it's probably just a bit of wishful fulfillment on his yeah. part, and I, it's not something that Kathy Kennedy is stepping aside because no, no, she's not. She's definitely are, not. Yeah. They are she's co-producing not stepping aside. whatever this project turns out to be. Um, I don't know. The other thing is, I quite like that the Star Wars universe gives directors a bit more free reign <laughs> when it when it keeps them. <laughs> I think when it yes, when they manage to hold on to a director. I th- like I, I know I'm not the you know the majority of this opinion but um i think the last jedi is one of the best star wars I, I movies think it's ever made yep yes. you're you're, you're in a safe space here john is good yeah. you're, you're, you're amongst friends that's fine <laughs> good, good. There are no uh, incels here and i i think a lot of that is down to ryan johnson having a putting his different... directorial stamp on the franchise okay. and giving it his own spin on it so rather you, than working under a sort of so you th- producer heavy you're wondering world. what the producer stamp is going to be yeah. and if this is a, if, if this is a producer led film mm. then what that's going to look like in the marvel now, course, universe the directors are kind of guided by that producer I, the, the, the that overall is, vision i think that was the case back in the day and you can go back and listen to early episodes of the podcast where we actually do lament the fact that there doesn't seem to be directorial identities evident mm. in many of the early MCU yeah. films, where clearly I think Feige and other people who were present at the in the early stages of the MCU, um, and perhaps those other people who are no longer there, are, is that's one of the reasons why things have changed. Mm. But maybe they were looking at the Eon template with Bond. Mm. And they were looking at the uh, the Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson template, where it's very producer led. The Bond movies that's changing a little bit as well. Where you get to you know, get you know, people here, stylists and visualists and individualists like Sam Mendes and and Carrie Fukunaga coming in to to do what they will with the, the with the franchise. But by and large, Bond for years and years and years was producer led, and the and the the directors and this is no disrespect to the likes of John Glenn um, were kind of journeymen mm-hmm. who would come in. They were able to handle with the second unit action set pieces, but they weren't necessarily people who would bring a great visual uh, identity to those movies. And that certainly was the case with the early MCU films. That's with some, changed. With some, with some deviations, like Kenneth yeah. Branagh for Thor, I think, kind of stood out With the out Dutch angles, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Certainly some, some, some deviations, of course, and John Favreau was the guy who established yes. the, the stylistic template for the MCU going forward. But over the last few years, that has changed. Mm, and Taika seems to be Taika Waititi mm. and Ryan Coogler and, uh, you know, and the, the, what the Russos have done on, on Infinity War and Endgame. Yeah. 
certainly seems that directors are more and more, and I think this is part of the fallout of the Edgar Wright thing, more and more directors seem to be given their head. That's interesting, and will that apply to whatever this movie is going to be? Will this movie rise and fall based on the the, the choice of director for it? Is Feige going to direct it? We don't know. I mean, I'm not sure how it's going to turn out, but I do think it's just going to be a one-off. Well, I, I feel Star Wars is almost on the opposite, isn't it? Where they started out with this bold vision to let filmmakers have their head and just do what they wanted. And they've still followed this through for the core episodes. I think Ryan had complete free, free reign and JJ also has had complete free reign. But then you look at uh, what happened with Gareth Edwards, you look at what happened with, with Lord Miller, and, you know, I think they were given free reign and then that reign was very quickly taken back. So I think maybe they're looking to go in a slightly different direction. And I, I, I agree with John. I think The Lost Jedi is fantastic. And part of that is because Ryan's sensibilities are so different to JJ's. And he did something very different with that film. But it is, there is a, there's a, a bit of whiplash going from Force Awakens into Last Jedi. Like it feels like you've suddenly shifted gear enormously. And there might be a little bit of grinding from the clutch as you're doing it because it's quite jarring. Mm. I enjoy it. I think it's quite refreshing. And I actually, I'm interested to see how this is going to work, where you're going from, you know, one gear with Force Awakens to this other gear with uh, Last Jedi and then back to the first gear for Rise of Skywalker. So I think it's actually going to... I think weirdly having bookending it with JJ might make that work better even. Yeah. Um, but certainly going forward, I don't think... You know, it, taking all this for granted, I don't think having a unifying sort of thread running through to have a sort of a superordinate narrative would be a bad thing. So Kathy is... Kathy Kennedy is very involved in the storytelling. So yeah. she doesn't write the script. She's not doesn't necessarily feed in directly the story, but she's always involved every step along the way. All the story meetings, she is present. So that's not to say she's completely hands-off with this stuff, but she has given... I mean, she has a lot of faith in JJ, and she has a lot of faith in Ryan, and I think, you know, both those things have paid off, so... I think I think whatever it becomes, I think it's a little way off, because yeah. Feige has to deal with <laughs> Phase 4. We've got, what? after Rise of Skywalker, the next Star Wars film is uh, 2022. Yeah, it's, it's a way the, off. Yeah. The mm. Game of Say Thrones that, but stuff. the way that this seems to have been a, uh, coming together very, very quickly, announced very quickly, and now we're hearing actors are, yeah. he's got actors in mind, so that indicates to me that this is something that's actually been bubbling under for, for a bit of a while. Hey everyone, Chris here, just jumping in, recording this on my iPhone, because frankly, it's been one of those podcasts, and it seems rather apt to do this after we talked about Kevin Feige and Star Wars, because yes, as you might have guessed... The news about Spider-Man returning to the Marvel Cinematic Universe broke a few hours after we recorded our emergency podcast. And so here I am, jumping on to tell you that yes, we're aware of it, and no, we won't be talking about it in this week's podcast, because Helen is running the marathon in Northern Ireland, James is living his life, and uh, I'm doing whatever the hell it is I'm doing. So we'll be talking about it on next week's show, which we'll be recording in Liverpool. So... There you go. We know about it. We think it's ace. We're very, very happy that Spider-Man is returning to his rightful home of the MCU. But we'll discuss it in full on next week's show. Right, now we're returning to your regularly scheduled pod programming. We should cover off a few other quick things uh, before we go. So uh, Laura Dern, Sam Neill and Jeff Goldblum all returning yes. to uh, Jurassic World 3. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? That's very exciting. Come on. Yeah. And, and wasn't it, have they said there, I mean, this isn't, like There's blinking, you're missing cameos. Walls. Yeah, it's yes. not just hey, we're in a helicopter and look who's sitting behind us. Yeah, <laughs> I mean Jeff Goldblum's uh, cameo in uh, Fallen Kingdom that was basically all in the trailer, wasn't it? Yeah, it was much, marketed yeah. as a huge comeback, and yeah. it was just him it was sitting at a not chair. That. Um, this is very exciting, isn't it? I'm quite excited. I am excited. Yes, they're all they're all still absolutely amazing. Mm. Yeah, 
Uh, Laura Dern is fantastic. She was great, and I haven't seen all the Big Little Lies, but the episodes I have seen, she's you know, she steals the show. And lest we forget, as Admiral Amalyn Holdo oh in the Last Jedi, love her, Holdo, fantastic. Uh, then we have you know Goldblum is Goldblum, just living the, everyone's best life at the moment. <laughs> as indeed is Sam Neill, who's just mm. an in, uh, incredible uh, guy, uh, an incredible actor as well. I'm really excited to see them back together again. What I'm worried about is that. They, they, they may feel that the focus has to remain on Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard. And I get that. I do get that. And I, but I don't want it to be where these guys are sidelined and or shunted in, into the, you know, the, what's, what's the thing? What's the thing you get shunted into? Sidelines. This is what I said. I'm very tired. So you get, you get shunted, you know, they just get shunted yeah. aside in favor of, you know, Mr. Manly Muscles. I would really like if Mr. Manly Muscles gets sort of slightly put in his place what, by eaten? the... Uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely in the, in the place of some jaws of a dinosaur. Uh, well, which then turns to Cameron and goes, he was always the worst Chris. <laughs> <laughs> did you see the poem he put on Instagram? I did see the poem he put on Instagram. Ooh, yeah. Well, the dinosaur or Chris Pratt? Chris, Chris Pratt. Pratt. What was the poem about? It was about outrage culture, as far as I could tell, and about how people are, are very, very quick to um, to attack uh, the other side. It was ill-judged. I think he needs to renounce the title of Chris. Uh, I don't think he's worthy of that title anymore. The other, there are only three Chrises now. Right, so it's just Pratt then. <laughs> uh, do you see this news last night? We didn't discuss this in the podcast because it, it broke afterwards, but there's a strong rumour that Sting... And Jack Savaretti. Oh, I did see this. Are going to be recording the theme tune for No Time to Die, the twenty fifth Bond movie. Now that, if if true, is a left field choice. Well, I mean, it's always good to get some rising talents to record <laughs> your Bond movie. Well, this guy yeah. Jack Savaretti, I honestly I'd never heard of him, uh, but uh, it says here in his Wikipedia that his song Candlelight uh, peaked at number seventy in the UK singles chart in two thousand nineteen. So that's good. Listen. Maybe this is a question. Uh, maybe this is a case of they've gone down the, the road of inviting people to contribute songs, and unlike with the Radiohead Sam Smith debacle, they've actually chosen the better song this time. So it might be that this is a, an absolutely a, a, an absolute belter. The Sam Smith song won an Oscar is awful, one of the worst yep. Bond themes, uh, and the Radiohead one that they wrote for that movie for Spectre, it was great. So yeah. go with that. But, you know, maybe maybe that's what's happened here. But uh, I'll be honest, I didn't think Sting was still a thing. <laughs> so the fact that he might be back singing a Bond theme, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm there for that. He's taken time out of his busy tantric sex life to uh, <laughs> to record a Bond theme. Isn't it? Maybe yeah, this I'm is sure. tantric recording. He, maybe he started recording the theme for A Few to a Kill years ago and it's just taken him 25 years to finish it. <laughs> I, I've, I've I also hearing rumours that the uh, the first trailer for No Time to Die will be out next week. Because uh, it's, I think it's Bond Day on October the fourth. I, I don't. <laughs> what the fuck is Bond Day? I don't know what Bond Day is. <laughs> it's. <laughs> I don't know. It's just they, a day when they celebrate bonds. It's everything needs a day now. You don't have a day. Yeah, it's James Day. T- today is James Day. <laughs> anyway, right. Yes, this is what is on on the rumor mill. We'll see some right. footage Good. from it. Good. I'm, you know, I'm down for that. I'm very excited to see what they're what they're cooking up. Mm. Wherever it is that they're cooking it up. Yeah, cool. Mm. Very excited. Any other stories you want to touch on before we move on to reviews? Or should we kick it in the head there? No. Did we talk about uh, Jonah Hill and Batman? We did, yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Should we do it again? Let's do it again. Jonah Hill's going to be in Batman. 
Well done, him. He's going to be in Batman. He's going. He's not actually going to be well, in the that Batman. That would be a very different type of film. Uh, but yes, but not just him, but uh, Jeffrey Wright as well. Jeffrey Wright, Commissioner yeah. Gordon. Jeffrey Wright's going to be Commissioner Gordon, and they don't know who Jonah Hill's going to yeah. be, or they haven't revealed. I, mean, no. I presume the filmmakers know who it's going to be. Yeah, you'd hope. <laughs> yeah, but just you just play yourself, Jonah. It's totally it out. Uh, yeah, he's going to be starring in Super Bat. It's good. It's good. That right, is good. Right there. Yeah. Uh, he's going to be a super bad because we think he's going to be uh, either the Penguin or the Riddler. Yeah, I can absolutely see him as a Penguin. Riddler is I the can one that see him has as a Riddler. Been, has been has been mooted. Well, the Penguin's also been mooted. So, yeah, but, but, but I've seen I, the Penguin being mooted, and you're saying the Riddler's being yeah. mooted. So I'm saying they're both being mooted. Okay, my moot's better than your moot. Mm. This they're saying this film is going to be a sort of rogues gallery sort of Batman movie, right? This is what I've been hearing. This, that there's going to be lots of Batman villains in this. Mm-hmm. How does it work though? With if it's going to be sort of realistic, how do you do a realistic penguin? Who says who says it's realistic? I I just assume that's where they're going. Given well, continuing the uh, legacy of Nolanization, I don't yeah. know that it will. I don't know. I'd I'd be quite up for another kind of Tim Burton esque gothic fairy tale, to be yeah. honest. But I just again, I am a little bit done with Batman ness at the moment. I feel there's been an awful lot of it. And I'm a little bit fatigued. I've got bat fatigue. But by the time this movie comes yes, out, yes, quite. I maybe the fatigue will have lifted. I know. I know. It seems weird. It'll it'll have been four years, a whole four years yeah. since Justice League. The last time we will have seen Batman on the big screen. So I, I think maybe it just feels like obviously we've got Joker. It's coming out next week, and I know that's not a Batman film, but it feels like you know the Bat verse has has never really left. Yeah, and Gotham has been yeah. around. And Pennyworth is coming yeah. out as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. No, I get that. I get that. Um, but I, I find it very hard to argue with this casting, and I hadn't heard that mm-hmm. about this potentially being a rogues gallery mm-hmm. film. Uh, and I really like that idea. That's a really yeah. f- almost like his, you know, he's got the greatest rogues gallery in comic books, and yeah, I'm absolutely there for that because that's one of the joys of the the 1966 Batman uh, movie. He's going up against Catwoman and the Penguin and the and the Joker. Oh, that that's interesting. Do you think there'll be another Joker in this movie? I hope not. Yeah. I'm more jokered out than I am Batman out. I feel like I feel like they need to pause the Joker a little bit. Like we've had two Jokers in the last what two three years. Mm. I'm buying up for a third. Let's do it. Let's and get a third Joker in there. Why not? It feels as as well like the this Whacking Phoenix version is going to still be fresh in people's minds. I think he kind of needs a little bit of a break. You don't want to have to another actor to have to reset this character and mm. you know go through some ridiculous behind the scenes sending condoms to his co-stars sort of I mean, malarkey. They, they don't need to do that. They don't need to do that. Cesar Romero didn't do that. <laughs> he didn't even shave his moustache. <laughs> Jack Nicholson didn't do that. Yeah. Do you think Jack Nicholson tortured himself for a single second? No, he was too busy counting his cash <laughs> and having the best time. Pulling that giant gun out of his trousers. Yes. How did he get it down there? It's very hard Who say. knows? Who knows? Where does he get those wonderful toys? Mm. Okay, so that is it for the movie news section. And now it is time to hear from our guest from last night at the York show, Craig Roberts, uh, who is, you know, you'll know him, of course, as an actor uh, in the likes of Submarine, Richard Iwadi's Submarine, 22 Jump Street, uh, Red Oaks, the Amazon show he was in for three seasons as well. Uh, but he is, of course, he's also a writer and director. He wrote and directed uh, and starred in Just Jim a couple of years ago. And now he's written and directed his second film, Eternal Beauty, uh, which is a, a, a funny, odd, perplexing, sometimes beautiful exploration of mental health, starring the wonderful Sally Hawkins. And uh, 
It's going to be playing at the London Film Festival. It's going to be receiving its world premiere there in the next couple of weeks. So do go and check that out if you're in London. And Craig was gracious enough to come up last night on the train all the way from London to York. And uh, we think, having listened back to the show, so basically just to clue you in on what happened, we just think there were some microphone issues that sounded good in the room but not great on the recording. So uh, you will hear in this recording, I think... (laughs) This recording is basically a microcosm of the whole thing. <laughs> so uh, you'll hear that my microphone wasn't working. And Helen's was up too loud. Helen's was up too loud. And Craig's was cutting out intermittently, yeah. especially towards the end. So we feel that while I'm going to be able to salvage a good 10 to 12 minutes of this interview and it's going to be listenable and it's going to be okay for you guys to hear, we felt that that over a two-hour period was going to be far too much and far too abrasive. So uh, we're going to try, like I say, we're going to try and make that work and get it up as a podcast at some point, but no promises, no guarantees. But here is Craig Roberts on great form talking about eternal beauty and much more besides. Enjoy. (laughs) Making a triumphant return to this podcast, his last appearance in public, one of my favourite interviews in the show's storied history. Uh, so we were delighted when he accepted our invitation to come up to York and do it all again on economy minds. <laughs> Not made of money. Uh, he is an actor, he is a writer, he is a director. His second film behind the camera will receive its world premiere at the London Film Festival in a few days' time. You please welcome the star of Submarine and Red Oaks and the director of Just Jim, and the upcoming Eternal Beauty, Craig Roberts! Hello, hello, hello. How are you, Craig? I need the bathroom. <laughs> you had an hour, man. I know, I should have left. I felt rude to go. Uh, you can go now. <laughs> No, I'll wait. <laughs> no, I mean, you can, you can go I can go ahead. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you can go We're whole friends here. It's totally fine. Uh, so Craig said, he, he came up, he said, oh, yeah, well, well, I want to stay and you know, watch the show and see how, how it works. Uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you regret the decision? <laughs> yeah, quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's well, that's, that's a terrible liar. That's a good thing. But uh, thanks for doing this, Craig. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you. Very, very excited. Eternal Beauty, Helen and I have both seen it. It's fantastic. And it opens, well, it doesn't open the LFF, but it, it opens in the LFF in a few days' time. How nervous are you about that? As you can tell, yeah, extremely. Um, yeah, very much so. Uh, we've, not, I've not really, we've had it for like a year. So we finished it, well, we finished it at the beginning of the year, rather, and nobody's really seen it. Mm. So, I, no. Okay. It's really good. Just check that out. Is it? <laughs> yeah. Awesome. No, yeah, um, I've, uh, I've seen it for, yeah, too many times. Um, I'm falling in and out of love with it every time, really. Um, but uh, that's not really a good sale. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, yeah, incredibly nervous, but also excited to show it mm. to people. It feels like I've just been hiding something, so it's good to get it out. So, what, how would you set it up? How, how do you. I know it's a really hard one to actually explain, but... It's not a Blumhouse film. It's not... Okay, so I've got that clear. That's good. Thank you. Um, The movie stars Sally Hawkins, and she plays a character called Jane, who um, has a tough time as a teenager, has a breakdown, and is diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Um, Sounds like a, you know, barrel laughs. But um, hopefully it is at some parts. But uh, it's... Yeah, it kind of follows her life and um, how she deals with her family and how her family deal with her. Um, how would you sell it? No, that sounds about right. I like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but it is very funny at times. Like, it's, it's, 
it's not always comfortable laughter. It's it's a sort of should I be am I allowed I think, to laugh yeah, at this? Yeah, I think it's because a lot when you know dealing with mental health, um, I feel like a lot of films. We were talking about this earlier, but it's usually a, a horror movie where they possess and they run down a corridor and they're going to kill everybody. But I didn't really want to make that. I wanted to make a movie just about a normal person and not like in a beautiful mind way where it's a genius and that's the result of that. Just about a normal person living their life and how they. Um, also, we so we showed it this morning at uh, uh, um, London Film Festival. We're showing the first screening on film on 35 millimeter. So we got the print made, and I watched that this morning. And somebody watched it and came out and said, um, asked the question, "Can we, can we recast the weakness of mental health as a strength?" Mm. And I think that that was what really drove me to make the movie. To be honest, that's where you started. That's where I started. Well, yeah, in a way. I mean, it started the movie. I grew up around it, not the movie. Um, but I grew up around sch uh, schizophrenia, and it's kind of inspired by somebody close to me. Okay. So that's where the idea came from. The characters were kind of fully formed, so it was just following the idea. And is this something that's been clearly been percolating for a while? And yeah, but the idea of turning this into into a movie—how long has that been an actual thing you're going to do, an actual goal for you? Well, after Just Jim, I didn't I didn't know if I wanted to make. I, mean, I definitely wanted to make one, but they're kind of tough. It's so hard mm. to put it out there, and then. Um, get reviews. <laughs> um, no, reviews are lovely. Yeah. Some, yes. some of them. Some of them yeah. I got absolutely killed with one review. Let's talk about that. Absolutely killed. So Peter Bradshaw, lovely guy, sure. Yeah. He, he, um, he said that I'd hung myself by making that first movie. And that's a pretty, pretty big Whoa. statement. I mean, he's a, you know, I'm, I respect him. I think he's amazing at what he does. But I was like, God, who have, who have I... Offended in your life to do that. That's crazy. Um, so yeah, I can't wait for him to review my next one. <laughs> but is it one of those things where you get a hundred positive reviews and one negative review, and you that's always, the one that sticks out? Yeah, you always focus on the yeah. bad. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, I live near Peter. I see him all the time. <laughs> I move near Peter after the review. Just keep an eye on him. Yeah, no, but he's great. Um, the reason was that, yeah, really, because I wanted to question whether it's a, you know whether these things can be superpowers and mm. um, we talked earlier about punch drunk love the pta picture and it's one of my favorite movies and i think it deals with anxiety in an incredible way i don't know how many people know that barry egan in the movie is actually superman uh superman um i think right is that the that is that's, that's, one, the, yeah, that's the, yeah. one of the theories yeah. one of the theories yeah Absolutely. I hope. So. Yeah, I think I think it is. Yeah, it's pretty close. Um, but yeah, so I I loved the idea of that and wanted to kind of take this person that's suffering with something or a victim, let's say, and just ask a bigger question of whether it's something else. Yeah. And was it always Sally Hawkins? Always. Yeah, yeah. I wrote the script with Sally. She read half of it and said no, and then I had to convince her to do the read the other half, and she still <laughs> said no. I know she said yeah. Uh, thankfully, I, she played my mum in a movie called Submarine, so it was kind of yeah. yeah Homecoming. I, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Ten years later. So, are you writing for uh, in terms of this character, and uh, are you writing for? what you know Sally can do. I mean, she's probably one of the best act actresses on the planet. She uh, really is, yeah. She's incredible. But are you writing for what you know she can do? Or are you writing a character in, uh, that maybe you've had experience of 
in your own life? Yeah, the character was already formed. Like, the character was the character. I didn't really have to work on the character, and it was just whether or not Sally wanted to do that. Um, she obviously took it to a place of her own once we started uh, rehearsing and stuff. Um, but she's a master of the craft. I mean, it's a pretty easy job directing her. Does she bring her Oscar on set? Like, set it down, like, no, I think you'll find this is the right approach today. No, sadly not. Sadly not, I wish. But she's so good. Yeah, she's honestly so, it's so easy to, to work with her. She kind of turns up and is in character. Um, and, yeah, you just point the camera and hopefully capture it. Mm. What's it like directing someone who played your mum? She played my mum twice. Yeah, once in Jane Eyre. I'm in Jane Eyre, and she plays my mum in that. Um, yeah, it's good. A lot of fun. <laughs> Pretty good. She, yeah. Do you get to reprimand her? Turn around. <laughs> yeah, turn sad, around the sadly not. Yeah. No, sadly not. <laughs> but it's really interesting, Craig, because the fact that you, know, you, you were in Submarine with Sally Hawkins. Submarine's nine years old. Ten, no, ten years, ten old. years old. Yeah, year. I think it's, you know, I'm not counting. Yeah, something along those lines. I think it's ten. Yeah. This is now your second film as director. Yeah. And if you had said to me that ten years on after Submarine, yeah. the star of Submarine would have made as many movies as Richard Ayoade. Yeah. That's kind of that kind of blows my mind. Well, that's Richard's fault. He needs to make. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he needs to make another movie. <laughs> he really does. Um, I'm sure he can. Um, so uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think uh, my acting skills are limited. So I kind of wanted to, I mean, it's like like Michael Sarah on a bad day, and that's it, really. Um, so I, I kind of, I, I don't know, I, yeah, I kind of wanted to do something else. And I, I, it's weird, I kind of found myself, oh, you get asked, in, you know, you do junkets and you do interviews, and I always found myself really talking about filmmakers as opposed to actors, so I kind of started to follow that, I think. Yeah, okay. Was that something that even from, even from Submarine on? Submarine was a gig, yeah. yeah. He, Richard, yeah, I owe Richard a lot. He's a very, very smart man and introduced me to, yeah, cinema, really. Yeah. Can you, can you talk about how that translates in terms of a, a, a visual approach to this movie? Because it's really ambitious visually. Yeah. Well. Good. Um, Are there influences? I mean, you know, it's not... It's not yeah, we, so we, we um, I'm obsessed with Magnolia as a movie. Um, that's not a reference, but I love the documentary and I love that bit where, I don't know if anybody's seen it. Um, but where PTA shows the uh, movie beforehand to get people into it. So every week we would show uh, a movie, well, for three weeks, sorry, three movies we played, and one was Punch Drunk Love, the other was Through a Glass Darkly, the Bergman picture, and the other one was Three Colors Blue. Okay, mm. interesting. There's a lot of blue in the film. If you don't, if you, if you don't like blue, don't turn up. <laughs> yeah, if you're blue at first, this is not the movie for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, in terms of the way it's shot and stuff, I, I didn't really want to make a typical British movie. Um, not that I dislike that, but it seems to be a lot of handheld and, mm. you know, the, the social social real kind of angle. I wanted it to feel almost American in terms of the way the camera moves, mm. um, just because that's the kind of movies I like. Yeah. There's a lot more colour in this. There's a, it feels like a lot more almost poppy in the colour sometimes. Yeah, yeah. There's this kind of theme that when she's on medication, there's no colour, and then when she's off, uh, the blue starts to come through, the idea of feeling blue um, and flipping that. And it's a hell of a cast. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, um, yeah. Should we say some of the people who are in the, in the movie? Um, so it's Sally, and then I play all the other parts. <laughs> <laughs> Mocat. Yeah, yeah. Um, Cat it's uh, it's Sa Sally, um, and then it's David Thewlis, um, uh, and then it's Billy Piper, Alice Lowe, uh, Penelope Wilton, um, Morvith Clark, who actually is in a movie called St. Maud, mm. which is also at LFF, if you can see that. It went up very well at Toronto. She's also in David Copperfield, which I saw the same day as I saw this. Yeah, she's having a good is, LFF. Yeah, she's doing yeah. all right. 
That's good. And also David Thewlis has three films at LFF, <laughs> as does Robert Pattinson. Are you feeling a little bit like you should be trying harder? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just a wee bit. Does David Thewlis get decapitated in any of those movies, I wonder? You know this, David Thewlis has been decapitated in four movies. What movies? True story. Anyway, that's great. Uh, all right, what are the movies? The Omen? The Omen remake, yeah. The Omen remake, not the yeah, He hasn't gone and reasserted himself of the, uh, the original movie. Uh, what's that Richard Donner film, Time... Time something. Timeline. Timeline, thank you. And, and two others. So, <laughs> there we go. And he has two, two of the heads at home. So, there you go. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. Please, Craig. <laughs> what were we talking about? David Hewlett. Okay, I did a short film with him, actually, that he wrote um, and acted in, so that's how I met him. And uh, I, as I said earlier, I was shocked that Sally and David hadn't really done a movie together because yeah. it felt like aesthetically they should both be in the same mm. picture, really. Also because of the Mike Lee kind of school they came from. Um, so, yeah, I wrote it with him in mind as well, that him to do it. And he was also in a band years and years ago called Door, yeah, Door 44. So <laughs> in, in, the, in the picture in Eternal Beauty, the, the film, um, he plays a guy called Mike who's basically smoked too much weed um, and uh, believes that his band hasn't got a deal because of uh, being controlled by the, the government and God as well. <laughs> a nice person to put with a schizophrenic. <laughs> that sounds healthy. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's healthy. Um, where did the title of the film come from? I mean, I know in the film there's a there's a ref- there's a thing. There's but, a commercial in, yeah. in there, but no, it was kind of the movie. The uh, the character that Sally plays, there's flashbacks in it, and uh, she has to deal with, I suppose, the memory of she was in a beauty pageant and she never won. So, and there's a there's a final scene that kind of she's having a photo taken again. Mm. And it was the idea of what is your own eternal beauty, I suppose, in like a picture. Are you happy with, you know, looking back and leaving it like that or maybe taking a photo now and that's how people remember you? Um, so, for want of more of a pretentious answer, yeah, that's... <laughs> oh, I like that. That's, that's good. What sort of... Uh, you mentioned Mike Lee there, and, uh, you know, David Hewlis and, and Sally Hawkins are from the School of Lee. And what sort of director are you, though? Do you, are you the director that you wanted to have I say the lines, and they are to repeat it exactly how I say it. Um, yeah, I don't know what kind of director. I don't know. I just like to have a happy set, to be honest, and have a good time. It's, it's as much about making it as it is the film, because you never really know how the film's going to end, end up. Um, so if you have a good time and everyone's very positive, that's good. Uh, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Um, I've got to ask you about Horrible Histories, the movie. Sure. As well, which came yeah. out uh, a couple of months ago. Yeah. Uh, in which you sing. Sorry? You sing. Do I? Yeah. Are you sure? I'm pretty sure. Well, you mine. I mine. I mine. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, yeah, it was so embarrassing. I, actually, once we, we, we showed the movie, and then afterwards people were like, congratulations, you've got such a great singing voice. I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> they got a Welsh singer to do the song, because um, I actually went in. The, I, I got off of the roll, and I went in to record the song, and within seconds they said, you cannot do this. <laughs> um, so they got somebody in, luckily, to do it. Oh, my God. How bad's your voice, man? It's really bad. <laughs> it's frightening. Yeah? Yeah, no, it's really bad. For a Welshman. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. I mean, not the stereotype, of course, but... All of you can sing. <laughs> I, all I could do is do my best Mariah. <laughs> 14 octave range. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mime was best I could. Okay. So you yeah. mimed along to that song. Yeah, it's actually quite hard to mime. Mm. I, I mean, if, if it's convincing miming, though, like Clooney mimed in Oh Brother Where Art Thou. So you're, like, you're in that, good company, yeah. you know? Right. Yeah. Oh, 
Mm. Rami Malek won an Oscar for it. I mean, it's fine. <laughs> That's true. That's yeah. true. They all give Oscars for anything these days. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> Listen, Craig, you might be in the running. <laughs> you never know. Horrible history is the movie, and then that's your Oscar clip. I'd be surprised <laughs> if I'm not, yeah. <laughs> so what's next, what's next for you? More, um, more Michael Sarah acting, or...? I've, somebody will have me. Yeah. I'm trying. Get well, myself out there. Taking a Star Wars, uh, <laughs> so uh, you all have to have Craig in your Star Wars, by the way. Um, I've actually not seen any of the Star Wars you've been talking about. I've, I've... <laughs> James has just given Greg the most terrifying look I've ever seen on a human face. It's Which full is... Donald Sutherland in uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. What's the Rizamid one? That's the one I saw. The we, oh, that's uh, Rogue One. Is that Rogue One? Yeah. That's the last one. How many have there been since then? 347. <laughs> All of these peoples have yeah. come out already. It's so. very, very hard to tell how many have been. Since Rogue One, so you, did you see The Last Jedi? No. Uh, <laughs> oh, you got with Adam Driver in it? Uh, there's one of the ones that Adam Driver in it, yeah. So there's Force Awakens. Right, sure. And then there's a sequel to that. Gotcha. Uh, and then there's Solo. Is there? The Solo prequel. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm, I'm telling you, yes. Uh, Solo, the Solo prequel starring Alden Ehrenreich as Solo. <laughs> Oh, I did see that one. I'm so sorry. I did see that. Clearly, I loved it. Yeah, you must have loved it. You've missed hardly any. You're fine. Yeah, yeah. Craig, as you can tell, is a, is a bit of a cinephile. So I have to ask, um, when we were banging on about Marvel, how many of those have you seen? <laughs> I saw the one where they dis- the one where they disappeared. Which one was that? <laughs> Probably Infinity War for Infinity War? And then there was one after that wasn't as good, uh, if I remember correctly. Is that Endgame? I might have been Ant-Man and the yeah, Wasp. Okay. Well, well, yeah, I just yeah. felt too long. Okay. Well, three hours, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But three hours can be sometimes good. It can be good, but it turned out really 93 minutes. 93 minutes. Yeah, we didn't have enough footage. <laughs> <laughs> we literally had 94 minutes of footage. <laughs> that must have been a tough edit. We cut my scene out. <laughs> Wow, that's amazing. That was like having my mum describe the Marvel Cinematic <laughs> What's the one where he disappeared? What's the one with Bruce Grobbledygar? Oh, I, I, I do like Tom Holland. That's Marvel, right? That's Marvel, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do like Tom Holland as Spider-Man. I think he's very good. Yeah. I saw the last one, actually. I thought the whole Jay Gyllenhaal thing was quite good. I didn't mind that. Oh, so you've seen, yeah. you seen that one? Yeah. I think you're a bit of a closet MCU fan, Craig, to be honest. I see them. I just, I feel like I should, I, I, I always buy tickets for independent films and then sneak into them. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. That's a good way of feeling, actually. Yeah, yeah, because they have enough money. <laughs> wow. Take that. One for Booksmart, please, and just... <laughs> that was fantastic. That was a great movie. Good. Yeah. It was yeah. an amazing film. Uh, so, uh, the last time you were on the podcast, we talked about your, your Hollywood experience, so to speak, you know, yeah. not just like uh, Red Oaks, but 22 Jump Street, films like that. At any point, did anything like a, like a Star War or a, or a Marvel come your way? Uh, there, was a sp- there was talk of Spider-Man um, at one point, and then I think I was t- it, was the Tom Hol- it was when Tom Holland was getting cast. Okay. And then he started doing all kinds of backflips and shit on Instagram and got the part straight away. Damn it. Yeah. That seems like cheating. But it would be so weird as if I was Spider-Man. So deadpan. I'm going to save you. And then like that. It'd be like, it would be so awful. <laughs> but yeah, I remember seeing that. I was like, oh, yeah, maybe that could be a thing. And then I saw his backflips. I was like, oh, you should do it, definitely. <laughs> 
Uh, but no, nothing. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not the kind of, uh, not the ilk that you would go for, really, in those kind of films. So I don't, yeah, probably not. I don't know. I can see it, man. Mm -hmm. I can, I can okay. see it. Yeah. yeah. I could also, like, what's terrifying is I really could see myself, like, ending their run. Like, <laughs> like, I really could. Like, if I was cast, I really would feel anxious that it would be the end. And there's no way back then. Once you kill, like, the biggest machine. Mm. Well, I don't know. I mean, George Clooney killed Batman, so... So did so many people, though. That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, he had a lot of accomplices. Oh, man. I think Robert Pattinson is actually... I'm really excited yeah. for his... The uh, Bale one was just so serious. Well, oh, no spoilers, but wait till you see the Joker. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, why so serious? We'll be talking about your problematic play next week, everybody. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> you have been the first person to be in the Marvel movies, so Craig, and not watch them. So I think that would be quite fun. Doing junk in no, that's not true. That's not true. Oh, you think we're the people? Shit. Okay. Is, isn't Kate Blanchett? Is Kate Blanchett in it? Gwyneth Paltrow. Gwyneth Paltrow. Gwyneth Paltrow. She, she's... <laughs> right. You see, I've seen them. Yes, it's true. <laughs> You've seen the interviews about them, but not the actual She's thing. been asked a bunch of times, and she never knows what's going on in those films. Yeah. She doesn't know who else is in the film with her. It's like, why, why is Samuel L. Jackson here? Because <laughs> he's in the film, Gwyneth. Right, right. Yeah, Spider-Man film that you make with Sam Jackson. Anyway, on that note, please give it up for the incredible Craig Roberts, everybody. Thank you. All right, so that was Craig Roberts. I hope I haven't edited yet. It might have gone all horribly, horribly wrong. But that was Craig Roberts, and uh, we'll be talking about Eternal Beauty whenever it comes out, I guess, next year. Uh, but now it is time to talk about the reviews. There was a lot of reviews to get through last night, Jim, but we don't have a lot of time, but we're no. going to start with Ready or Not. Yes, this is uh, a new horror film from Matt uh, Bettinelli-Alpin and Tyler Gillett. Uh, Better known as Radio Silence, apparently. It says a Radio Silence film. That's yeah. interesting. There you go. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> this stars uh, Samara Weaving in the title role as a bride-to-be who is marrying into a wealthy, if eccentric, family who's made their money out of board games. And as a special quirk of the sort of nuptials, uh, on her wedding night, she is forced to play a game. Not the normal type of games one would play on one's wedding night, but rather she goes down into a room with the family and has to draw a card. And it might be chess, it might be draft, it might be checkers, it could be twister. Who knows? But she pulls the one bad card, which is hide and seek, which results in the whole family hunting around the house and trying to murderize the shit out of her. Yes. Uh, and that is the setup for the film. And that so, may sound daft. Yes. But, but it's, it's explained. It is explained. And what makes this work so well, this is not a straight up po-faced horror film. It is hugely tongue in cheek. It is genuinely, hilariously blackly comic uh, and I think Weaving is the absolute hands down star of this she is so funny in this and she takes the perfect through line in this where she's not like you know damned in peril she's almost if anything just slightly like exasperated and sardonic and she has these wonderful one-liners all the way through it and there's a part where she sort of tears the bottom of her wedding dress off she's wearing like converse a rip wedding dress holding a shotgun with a bandolier around her and you're like this is awesome um to my mind it brought to mind to me cabin in the woods like it had the same sort of feel to me as cabin in the woods where it was horrific but it was funny it wasn't referential necessarily in the same way that cabin in the woods no. is but really yeah. He's really humorous and really embraces that funny side of it. Uh, Adam Brody is in this, mm -hmm. who we don't see enough of. Loved him in the OC. We don't. No. Um, thought he was really good in this. Uh, and then you've got uh, Andy McDowell as the mother-in-law. Yes. Which makes it essentially one wedding and it, lots one of funerals. Wedding and lots of funerals. <laughs> yeah, I, this, this was a surprise for me. I thought, oh, yeah, low-budget horror, whatever, another one. It's the most fun I had in the cinema in ages. I thought it was fantastic. 
It's great. It's really, really fun. It's uh, really bloody, by the way. So it, if it's, you, it's an eighteen. It's an eighteen. It's an eighteen, and that is unusual in this day and age. Very unusual. Yeah. Uh, the BBFC are just like, yeah, whatever. It's fifteen. Fuck it. Uh, but no, this is an eighteen. I'm not entirely sure why. It's not that graphic, is it? Yeah, I mean, it is graphic. It is gory. There's not, some. There's some. I watched it with Helen, and we were both going, oh no. I think one of the reasons why it doesn't feel as graphic is because the the grisly the murders tone. are yeah the tone of it it's done in a very tongue in cheek way so even when they're decapitating people you're laughing because it's funny it's it is funny but it's also really tense it is tense it is really really tense yeah. I think it's really well directed I think it runs out of steam a little bit in the last fifteen minutes or so but I think builds up again towards the climax like it flags a bit and then I think yeah. picks up, I really love the ending there's some lovely ingenious touches and yeah. you're absolutely right Samara Weaving is worth the price of admission alone she was in three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri yeah. she was Penelope the character that John Hawkes left um, Francis McDormand for uh, she inspires the line the best line in the film Penelope said baguettes uh, she's great she's an Australian actress uh, the Definitely the touch of the Margot Robbie's about her. Yeah. Uh, but this is one of those great star-making turns you will remember. And, I, you know, I love films, I love horror films that have great, strong protagonists. I'm not necessarily about the horror films. As much as I love the Friday the 13th movies and as much as I love Nightmare on Elm Street, I'm not about horror films that necessarily lionize their bad guys and turn them into the anti-heroes of the franchise. I'm about movies, you know, this is a great strong, central hero of a movie in the same way that the greatest movie of all time, Evil Dead 2, has a great, strong, central hero mm. in the shape of Ash. So, uh, yeah, more power to uh, to this film's elbow. Uh, four stars then for Ready or Not. It is terrific. You will have a great time. And Samara Weaving is one to watch. As indeed, by the way, is Sam Adewunmi, who is the star of The Last Tree, which is a uh, really sensitive British film about a young black man played by Adewunmi for most of the movie anyway, growing up in London after he relocates there from a rural town where he's been living with his foster mother. And this is directed by Shola Amu, John. And uh, I, I thought this was really terrific, but what did you yeah, think? Yeah, it's really impressive. Um, it's been compared a lot, it's been talked of as a British moonlight in a lot of ways. Which, which, is, which simultaneously feels reductive, it's, but it's, also I can I can understand it, 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 because there's a lot to it. It's about uh, Time know, periods. a young black... Yeah black man sort of trying to grapple with his identity and it is sort of divided into the similar structure that sort of three periods of time but i think there's more to it than that i think i think it is very much its own film it doesn't feel like it's it's stealing from moonlight in any way it's its own beast um and it is very autobiographical i think for for the director sholo amu um it's it's basically we we join the film in sort of early childhood this this boy femi um is living with foster parents in rural Lincolnshire and he's having a very happy and idyllic life and then his uh, biological mother who is Nigerian comes back to take him back to London where mm -hmm. where she lives. She's been away, she's been off the scene for a while. Yeah. It's never explained why but it's, you get the sense that she just, maybe there were circumstances in her life that meant that raising a kid wasn't the number one priority or mm. she couldn't give him the life that she wanted to give him. Yeah. And then I think the second uh, chapter in the film if you like deals with the sort of more teenage Femi who is now living quite a, a sort of a tough life in urban London um, you know he's there's lots of bad choices being thrown his way and uh, uh, that that to me felt like perhaps the, the weakest part of the film I, f I think it felt uh, like we've we'd seen a little films like that before it's the part of the film uh, I don't want to say what the third part is mm. but 
it's the part of the film that skirts, I think, the most with with cliches. It's, mm. it's uh, or you know, what we have, what we perceive as cliche. Obviously, someone's truth could be cliche. Yeah, but it 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 it's a part of the film that, that feels most like oh, I've seen this before. Yeah, this is a tale I've seen told a thousand times. It's a young kid growing up, falling in with the wrong crowd. But it doesn't, and there's a teacher trying to save him, and yeah. you know his mother's looking on aghast as her son, you know, goes down the wrong the wrong route in life. But it doesn't necessarily play out the way you you expect it to play out. Yeah. And I don't think the bad guys, quote unquote, bad guys in this are necessarily uh, two dimensional characters. There's you know there's attempts there to to certainly give one of them a bit of a bit of backstory and a few grace notes as well. And that's what I really, really liked about it. I really liked the fact that it's, it is unconventional. I think it's shot beautifully yeah. as well. Uh, it, the budget for this thing must have been really low. Uh, but uh, Amu makes, he shoots urban London in a really interesting way. He shoots the tower block in which um, uh, Femi lives. He makes it look like a prison at mm. times as well. Uh, but there's some lovely touches, you know, there's inspired by Scorsese or Spike Lee where, you know, where he's kind of floating through the air. It seems you know, but the camera's attached to him. And he's he's walking through uh, school um, in a certain state of mind, shall we say? And there's 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 uh, really really lovely elliptical touches as well. Lovely transitions between time periods as well, which really yeah. which really caught me. Um, and it's just it, it's a really well acted film. I thought um, it's definitely well worth your time. And Sam Adewumi. The young kid, Ty, I think it's Ty Golding, plays him mm-hmm. as, a, as a kid. He's terrific as well. Yeah. Um, but Sam Adewumi, um is certainly someone I think is going to go places and very, very fast indeed. Yeah, I, th- I think he's fantastic. I interviewed him for the MAG for our introducing slot and he does feel like he's a sort of emerging talent just about to burst onto the scene. Like I really feel like you're going to be seeing him everywhere yeah. very soon. Um, four stars, yeah, we yeah. gave it. Um, I, I, th- I thought it's a really impressive piece of what I think Shola Amu and Sam Adewumi are both talents that... Really, I think you should watch out for because yep. they're going to be on the scene for a long time. Indeedly, Beadley. Four stars then for the last tree. A hell of a week so far. Uh, should we bring the quality down a bit with the goldfinch? <laughs> sure, let's do it. All right. Uh, this this was I, I, it's a shame Helen isn't here because Helen has read the book and therefore brings a whole new dimension to this intensely tedious and long film. I have to uh, say I skipped the book partially because I think all books should, should be one of two things. <laughs> they should be either a Stephen King book or they should have Jack Reacher in it. Or ideally both. Yeah, or ideally both, like Under the Dome. Yeah, <laughs> which mentions Stephen Jack Reacher. <laughs> yes. Can I, just, my Stephen King. I, I have read the book. Oh, oh okay. okay, so we I, do this thing where you, you review the book and I review the film. Is Jack Reacher in it? Jack Reacher is not in did it. Did Stephen King no contribute? Uh, Stephen King did not write it. Rubbish. Yeah. It's one of my favourite books of all time. It's a fantastic it piece of work. It's stunning and beautiful and emotional and heartfelt and surprising and interesting. And also... Reading it, I remember thinking, this probably wouldn't make a very good film. That's very interesting because the film is none of those things. <laughs> why, would it not, why would it not make a good film? Well, because it's very internal. Like, so yes. Basically, all of the book is sort of set in uh, the brain of Theo, the, 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 the lead character. And, you know, it's, it's, incre- it's all about his interiority. And that translates very badly on screen a lot of the time. I think, mm. I think that's, it's a very hard book to adapt. Yes, too hard, it seems. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is this is Donna Tartt's elephantine novel translated into two and a half hour movie. Um, so this this does star Theo. He's a young man who kind of loses his mother early on and illicitly gains a painting of a bird, uh, which is exciting. Uh, and John Crowley's adapted this for the screen, and and you get to see him in two slightly tedious timeline so Uggs Fergley plays him as a as a sort of a younger version, and Ansel Elgort as he gets older. Um, but as you say, I think. 
the problem is, and I find this with literary fiction a lot, so much of it is descriptive, so much of it is internal. And unless you're going to go full interior monologue or full voiceover, and this does a bit of that, you lose a lot of that. So Theo comes across in this film as a cipher. Like, you don't really understand what makes him tick. You don't really get inside his head. You don't really know an awful lot about him. He feels quite a thin character, which is a bit of a problem, Mm -hmm. given that his character is the backbone of the entire book. Uh, and this hops between the two the two time zones, and it moves at a quite slow pace, which again I can see totally working in the book. But it also feels very reductive. It feels like this is a weird paradox because the film is too long; it's two and a half hours, and it's really boring. But equally, it feels like it rushes things, and it doesn't go into the character enough so you don't feel you get to know him well enough and I think this is one of those things where if you'd sold it to Netflix as a 10 part series maybe they could have made a fist of this and maybe it could have worked but as a film it doesn't I mean I don't need to give this a kicking because every single critic on the internet has already mauled the shit out of it Uh, it's been famously savaged from every direction savaging a goldfinch yes they've been ripping this goldfinch apart um but yeah, unfortunately, I don't know what to say. It's it's just not good. Mm. Um, there are there's everything from dodgy Russian accents to I mean there, there, there's some good turns in it. Nicole Kidman is in there as a kind of a, the the mother of a friend of his who takes him in after his mother is killed. Uh, Luke Wilson plays his deadbeat dad who returns at one point. Sarah Paulson step-dad, as uh, stepdad. Uh, no, uh, no, it's his actual father. Oh, it's actual father. Uh, Luke Wilson plays his actual father. Sarah Paulson, his stepmother. That's right. Who yes. um, comes in? So you know, great performances in there, but. It just doesn't hang together, and there's you know there's the sort of uh, quote unquote unrequited sort of well not quite un- unfulfilled should we say love interest that he has across the years, but even that feels a bit thrown away and unexplored and feel insubstantial. I think there's very little emotional engagement in this film, and this is why it comes across as boring because from a pure plot perspective, it you know not a lot really happens. It goes into a weird espionage kind of action-y, thriller beat at the end, which is strange. Uh, but right up until then, it's very much the exploration of this boy's motive, and it's an emotional journey, except you don't see the emotions. So, you know, all I can say from this is, rather than spend two and a half hours watching this, spend, you know, two and a half days reading the book, and you'll probably have a better time. Wouldn't you agree, John? Uh, yeah. I, yeah, I have Read to say, it's, it's disappointing, because, um, yeah, the book is, one of my, as I say, one of my favourites. Yeah. And John Crowley, the director... His last film was fantastic, the Brooklyn, which was yeah, another yeah, adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really beautifully done and did not feel reductive. You really felt the characters, you, you felt the story. There's more motion in that story. There's an yeah. awful lot more happens. Yeah. And I think you don't rely quite so much on sort of the interior tinkerings of someone's mind. I Here's wonder a... if, if it would have been better as a TV show. Yeah. If you like, yeah, you span definitely. it out to a HBO miniseries, yeah. like yeah. it would have worked. Send it to Netflix. Definitely. Here's a question that we can perhaps explore on a later podcast when we have more time. What is the longest book to be successfully adapted as a single movie? Oh. Because isn't there a problem with lengths of books and 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 cinema as a whole? You know, yeah. it, you, it's very hard for a movie to go over three hours. Okay, so this is why The Stand will never work as a as no, a movie. There's too much. Too it's much why happens. In it had to be split into two chapters. Lord of the Rings had to be split into three. You know, some of the later Harry Potter uh, doorstops had to be split into into two chapters as well. Same with the Hunger Games. Did they do? You know, that's the thing. I mean, maybe a more judicious editor could have uh, approached that and and made one movie. But, you know, 
what's the longest? Is there a, is there a cutoff point? For example, is it six hundred pages? Is it seven hundred pages? Perhaps we'll discuss that. Perhaps if you're listening to this at home, you can tweet us and uh, and let us know what you think the answer is, and maybe we'll discuss it on a later podcast. Maybe but there you go. But the goldfinch. Um, I've just done a bit of googling here. The European goldfinch is a small passerine bird in the finch family that is native to Europe, North Africa, and Western Asia. And I have to say, James, you didn't mention any of that in your review, so that you've been found wanting. <laughs> Sorry, uh, but two stars which is actually one of the more generous reviews of this movie. I just did a quick look at it and the disaster and shredding and all sorts of horrible words that mean very bad things that uh, came up in my in my search. Uh, so two stars then for The Goldfinch. Do yeah. not go see The Goldfinch. And then very, very quickly, we have two films to talk about. One, both of which you can watch in the comfort of your own home. One, mm. if you have Sky Cinema, and that is Hotel Mumbai, which is a harrowing, and I mean harrowing, recreation of the terrorist attacks in Mumbai in 2008, which culminated in a siege in the Taj Mahal Palace Hotel. Mm. And this is a bit of an all-star cast, feels like a bit of a modern disaster movie. Dev Patel, Army Hammer, Jason Isaacs, people like that. Uh, Jimbo, what did we think of this? Uh, this is one of the things, it works very, very well in that the tale it tells is so upsetting and so harrowing and it's told so unflinchingly that it works really well in recreating those events. So there's an insouciance to the violence in this where people are just casually gunned down innocent people in this hotel and it happens with alarming frequency and then the camera moves on and someone else gets killed and then that's intercut with moments of horrific just upsetting sadism like terrorists trying like forcing the receptionist to call rooms to tell people that rescue has arrived so they'll open the door to the people who then shoot them like i mean it's really really it's it's a litany of horrific things i think what's uh anthony morris who directed this uh first time director uh, what he does very well with this is get inside the heads of i think more the terrorists than the victims. So the victims come across as a little two-dimensional. They all have their kind of moments and you have that disaster movie set up at the beginning where you see what they're all doing, how they all fit into each other's lives. And it is really hard-hitting. This is an incredibly difficult watch. I think where this film maybe slightly goes wrong is it's too focused on the character level stuff and it never steps back and it never gives you a broader picture. You never really understand, you know, why it takes so long for the Indian Special Forces to get there. You never really understand how this fits in to the sort of geopolitical world. It's very concerned with the three days it depicts and nothing really beyond that. And it feels it limits the film's scope uh, in doing that. Um, that said, I do think it's a film people should watch. And I think it's, you know, okay. in the, it's, it's got marvellous sort of camera work uh, sort of as you go through the labyrinth of the hotel and sort of watching people sort of hide from these people just roaming the corridors trying to kill them. It's incredibly tense. Uh, and I genuinely had to mm. stop. I mean, as you say, you can watch this on, on Sky Cinema. I and in to, cinemas, of course. And well. in cinemas yeah. as well. I, I, I stopped this a couple of times to sort of get up and walk around just to take an emotional mm. break from it because I, I yeah. found it very, very draining. I think the closest comparison to this is possibly United 93. That film is a tough watch. And I knew this would be a tough watch going into it. And I, I had to steal myself up to watch this because, you know, it's all about tone, isn't it? And it is so all about and, tone. and obviously knowing that this happened as yes. well and you could discuss, you could argue for, for days about whether films like this even should exist. Mm. I mean, I think it's important to shine a light on atrocities like this but you could also say that I know the Greengrass in particular came in for a lot of criticism about his uh, Anders Breivik film. People thought that he was giving Breivik a platform. Mm. You could level the same accusations at Hotel Mumbai in but a way. it makes it real. I think Hotel yeah. Mumbai is the closest you could possibly get to seeing what they saw, to being on the ground. Yeah. I think it does that element of it very well. But I also feel that it is a little bit Greengrass light. And I feel it is, yeah. that it, it, it's 
it's an oppressive movie. It's mm. a harrowing movie. Um, but I feel that Greengrass would have brought a real urgency and a real uh, visceral quality to the action. There is that no I don't urgency think, to this. Yeah, I don't it, think Anthony Maris yeah, brings it. It runs, it doesn't so much run out of steam. You're always sort of slightly fatigued by the dread and the tension, mm. but it doesn't have any urgency to it. It sort of, it draws itself out. I think it's it's incredibly effective in certain elements, but I think from a filmmaking perspective, it doesn't live up to its potential. Yeah, I agree. But the performance is good all across yeah, the board. Yes, they are. Uh, I'm going to single out uh, the great Indian actor Anna Pam Kerr as well, oh, who, plays, who plays uh, the chef Oberoi, who was a real mm. hero in the attacks. And uh, uh, he, along with many of his staff, vowed to stay behind and protect their guests yeah. uh, because that was the honorable thing to do. And, uh, and uh, he was instrumental in making sure that a lot of people survived. The, the attack as well. Uh, but, you know, the likes of uh, Nazanin Boniadi and uh, Army Hammer, as I mentioned before, and Jason Isaacs, who's playing a, a kind of Russian, <laughs> sinister Russian uh, oligarch type figure. And uh, yeah, he's having a, a field day with that as well. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good film. It is a good film. We gave it three stars. And I think that's right. Three stars is, of course, a recommendation. It's a tough watch. I will say that. So if you're not in the mood for Hotel Mumbai, you may never be in the mood for Hotel Mumbai, but uh, if you are, then do give it a go. Lastly is a film only I have seen, so I'm going to talk about it very briefly, and it's available on Netflix, uh, only on Netflix, and it's Between Two Ferns, the movie, and this is the movie adaptation of the long-running sketch, which Zach Galifianakis plays a kind of... <laughs> um, Dark version of himself as a incompetent public uh, access TV interviewer who manages to get Hollywood A-listers into his little set, uh, which, which is bedecked by two ferns, a black backdrop, and ask them really, really awful questions. It's really funny. Uh, I, I've loved Between Two Ferns ever since uh, I, I saw the first one uh, about 10 years ago now. Jesus Christ. Uh, so, Sakalafanakis uh, with uh, Scott Ackerman, uh, who was the co-creator of Between Two Ferns and is also the host of Comedy Bang Bang, and Are You Talking, R.E.M., Remade, two of my favourite podcasts. Uh, they've made this film version, and you may wonder how they've made this into a film. Uh, surely it can't just be Sack Galifianakis interviewing celebrities for 90 minutes, and it isn't that. So it's about, at the beginning, he's interviewing Matthew McConaughey. It's explained that it's part of Funny or Die. Will Ferrell is basically forcing his A-list friends uh, to go and, and uh, be interviewed by Sack Galifianakis, and the joke is on Sack Galifianakis, who's playing a pathetic version of himself. This is not the movie star, Sack Galifianakis. This is just a bit of a sad sack guy. Um, and uh, so he's interviewing Matthew McConaughey. Long story short, nearly kills him. And so as uh, as recompense for that, he is forced to go on the road with his assistant, played by Lauren Lapkus. Uh, Ryan Gall is his cameraman and Giovanni Lanayo as uh, his sound lady as well. And they go on the road and they try and recruit as many celebrities as they can because they have to record 10 episodes in order for Between Two Ferns to stay alive and for Zach to get a network talk show deal. That's the basic story. So it's a bit of a road movie. Uh, and it, the whole thing was entirely improvised from scratch. I think they basically wrote a, a rough outline, but every scene is improv and Sometimes that leads to gold. There's a, a cameo appearance by Peter Dinklage, which goes off in a really unexpected direction. He's one of the funniest things in the movie for me. Sometimes it leads to meandering scenes that don't really go anywhere. There's an entire subplot about a documentary crew following him, which they just seem to forget about until they remember it at the end. They go, oh yeah, we should do, oh, we should bring these guys back in and do something. So it's a bit slapdash. It's a bit all over the place, but it's 82 minutes long. Cannot recommend that enough. And it made me laugh consistently. You get little snippets of Between Two Ferns classic between two ferns all the way through with this litany of great 
guest stars, likes of Tessa Thompson and Brie Larson and Benedict Cumberbatch and Paul Rudd and Peter Dinklage and people who haven't been in Marvel movies, astonishing <laughs> enough, are in this film as well. Uh, and it just kept the chuckles consistently going for me. Not a classic by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, I thought it's a bit of a laugh. If you like Between Two Ferns, if you like the comedy of Comedy Bang Bang, although it's never quite as weird or out there as Comedy Bang Bang can be, then it's well worth your time. I don't think we've reviewed this film. So I'm going to give it a Hewitt rating of three stars. Unofficial Hewitt rating. Three Hewitts for this out of a potential 475 Hewitts. (laughs) That doesn't sound that good. No, it's good because three is, I actually go the other way around. So 475 Hewitts is really bad. One Hewitt is tremendous. So if you're getting three Hewitts, that's a recommendation. I'm very confused. (laughs) Can All right. We, can we talk very briefly? Uh, the Third Man is getting re-released. Is week. it? Yeah. I love cricket. Tell me more. No, it's a classic 1949 film noir directed by Carol Reed. Uh, it's one of the greatest films of all time. Joseph Cotton, Orson Welles. Oh, yeah, the one. Yeah, I know that one. Dutch Angles. It's yes. better than the second man. Not as good as the fourth man. <laughs> yep. Uh, yep. What about uh, Fine Leg? Is that being released as a movie anytime soon? Yes. Uh, inspired the song of course of the same name on the Duckworth Lewis Method second album uh, narrated by Daniel Radcliffe so smoke that in your smoky pipe yeah good. tremendous film tremendous very film. very good film go and see it yes where's it, where, where, where's the plan I didn't even know it was out this week uh, select cinemas I believe you will find it yes perhaps in a sewer who knows but uh, yeah do go and check out The Third Man it is a belter and I presume we're giving it five stars yes or uh, one Hewitt if you will. It's it's that good, guys. One Hewitt? Yeah. Really? No, trust me. It's good. All right. That is it for this emergency podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it. Have we covered everything? I think we covered everything. I just want to go to bed. I know. I know. Uh, Jimbo stayed in my spare room last night on my very expensive but slightly squeaky airbed. It does make a lot of noise. It, yeah, it means that you can't, you're not tempted to onanism. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Well, you know, because the, the telltale noises. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, join us next week for more film-related fun. We will hopefully be having the uh, recording from our Liverpool show. That's going to be a lot of fun. And if not, then we're going to be back in here doing an emergency plumber session. Except I'm not, because I'm going to be standing up in Liverpool for the Leicester game. Oh, fuck. I haven't thought that through. <laughs> anyway, that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, until we meet again, until a auspicious occasion, uh, it is goodbye from John Nugent. Goodbye. It is goodbye from James Dyer. Goodbye, again. Yes. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to... (laughs) Breaker, breaker, 42, breaker. Uh, And hopefully the sound quality will be absolutely fine. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. (laughs) 